This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Our first panel is entitled Diaz Canal, Maduro and Ortega, Why Are They Still in Power? Our panelists include Victor Shea, an expert on the politics of Chinese bank, banking policies, fiscal policies, and exchange rates, as well as elite politics of China. Victor is an associate professor of political economy at UC San Diego School of Global Policy and Strategy, GPS. Victor is an expert on the political economy of, of authoritarian regimes with special emphasis on China. He has also spent time examining the Chavez and Maduro regimes in Venezuela, so we feel he'll provide good perspective um, for this forum. Our next speaker will be Javier Corrales, professor of political science at Amherst College um, in Amherst, Massachusetts. He obtained his PhD um, from political science from Harvard. Javier's research focuses on democratization, presidential powers, ruling parties, democratic backsliding, popularism, political economy of development, oil and energy, and, um, and also issues of sexuality in the Americas. Javier has a forthcoming book entitled Autocracy's Rising coming out this summer that discusses the transition to authoritarianism in Venezuela since 2010s with comparisons to Colombia, Ecuador, and Nicaragua. Following Javier, um, our, our next speaker will be William Leo Grande, who is a professor of government at American University and a specialist in Latin American politics and U.S. foreign policy towards Latin America. Professor Leo Grande has been a frequent advisor to governments and Private sector, um, the private sector. He's written five books. Most recently, he co-authored a book um, entitled Back, Back Channel to Cuba, The Hidden History of Negotiations Between Washington and Havana. At this time, it gives me great pleasure. Oh, and finally, we have Richard Feinberg, um, um, who is a professor of political economy at UC San Diego um, School of um, Global Policy and Strategy. At this time, it gives me great pleasure to introduce um, Professor Victor Shea, who will start off our session. Victor, take it away. Thank you, Richard, uh, for this kind introduction. Uh, and also, I, I'd like to thank my other colleague, uh, Richard Feinberg, for uh, inviting me to this event. Uh, you know, unfortunately, I can't be here live. Uh, but, you know, of course, the survivability of authoritarian regimes um, is a topic that I've uh, thought a great deal about over the years. Um, culminating to an edit book that I did um, entitled Economic Shocks and Authoritarian Stability. Um, so that came out a couple of years ago. Uh, and so I'm going to today, what I'm going to do is to uh, introduce the framework that we have in the book and then talk a little bit about, uh, especially the case of Venezuela under Maduro. Um, you know, as most of you remember, a couple of years ago, uh, you know, there, there was an effort um, mainly conducted by opposition within the country, but also with the encouragement and maybe even support of the U.S. government to um, kind of uh, conduct regime change. Uh, it ultimately did not work. Um, so so uh, perhaps applying the framework that I have may um, high, uh, kind of reify some aspects of that episode. Uh, so as most of you know, uh, in the existing literature on authoritarian regimes, authoritarian stability, a great deal of emphasis has been put on institutionalization. Um, so a lot of scholars in comparative politics have made the argument that if authoritarian regimes have 
um, institutions, power sharing institutions, and party structure. Um, it can really uh, kind of basically provide uh, stable expectations to the ruling elite that they will receive payoffs in the future. Uh, a party structure, in addition, will help uh, the rulers of a regime to, uh, A, this is kind of the Beatrice Magaloni argument, uh, distinguish between competent and incompetent uh, lieutenants. And then also, uh, according to sort of Milan Svolik's uh, now, by now sort of classic argument, uh, provide incentives for uh, especially junior level lieutenants to uh, conduct tasks uh, ordered by the dictators in order to get promotions. Uh, and so having that kind of party structure uh, really helps with uh, incentivizing people um, to remain loyal to the regime and to not defect. Um, of course, uh, you know, there's been a, a large literature, including, you know, by our colleague, uh, Steph Haggard, of course, uh, on, you know, during moments of economic crises and economic shocks, um, potentially everything changes. The calculus of people who support the regime also changes uh, because they're expected to pay off uh, both today and also into the future changes, potentially uh, not supporting the regime anymore or maybe even uh, supporting the opposition becomes a rational course of action uh, during an economic crisis. Um, so in, in the book, we, we argue that it's not so simple. Actually, if you look at um, episodes of economic shocks in established authoritarian regimes, in many cases and potentially, and we didn't do this sort of careful statistical counting of, you know, uh, you know what constituted uh, institutionalized regimes and, uh, you know, after economic crises, the percentage of them that survived, uh, all I would say is that uh, a surprisingly large number of them survived these ordeals and sometimes even very severe economic shocks, uh, as was the case of Iraq after the first Gulf War. Um, and so our chapter in the book was written by Lisa Blades, of course, the leading authority uh, of countries in the Middle East. Um, and even in the case of Iraq, what uh, happened was that instead of, um, you know, having a disgruntled elite suddenly, you know, obviously suddenly the resources available to the regime shrank tremendously. You know, of course, Iraq was an economy that uh, largely depended on export of oil. Suddenly they could no longer legally export oil to other countries. There were black market channels, but overall, the amount of oil and the revenue derived from oil sales uh, collapsed, you know, or shrank dramatically. It didn't go to zero, you know, just today, like uh, the case of Russia today, it doesn't go to zero overnight, uh, but it shrinks dramatically uh, in the case of Iraq. Um, so what Saddam Hussein did was instead of, um, you know, uh, cutting benefits to all of his supporters uh, equally, he uh, reduced uh, benefits to some of his um, supporters, you know, the sort of the Sunni community writ large, cut those benefits tremendously. But for people um, in his core um, support group, uh, those uh, from around Tikrit, the city of Tikrit, um, he continued to provide a lot of extraordinary benefits and even increase some payoffs to uh, some, some of those people uh, in some cases. So then uh, by doing that, even with a, uh, reduced benefits, he was able to stay in power. Of course, the risk of a coup, the risk of someone trying to overthrow him also increased. Um, so 
basically based on cases like this and uh, authoritarian leaders' ability to survive these economic shocks, we come to a couple of conclusions. One is that uh, in the traditional literature, um, basically, you know, people looked at outcomes of interest as, you know, either status quo, the, the regime stays in power, or there's a regime change, the regime collapses. In fact, uh, what we find is that there's this intermediate outcome where, uh, of course, when there's big economic shocks, uh, there's less money to go, go around, something has to change. Uh, but what the dictators can often do is to reduce benefits to some members to uh, of his support coalitions. But then for other members of his support coalitions, benefits remain the same or perhaps even increase. Uh, so it's a changing of the ruling coalition, if you will. Uh, so that's kind of an intermediate outcome. And that's kind of surprising uh, in a sense, because there's this idea of minimum winning coalition. right? So it's like, you know, dictators don't want to waste money paying all these people to support him. Um, normally, he would pay the least number of people necessary to keep him in power anyway. So then how is it possible that during an economic crisis, you can stop paying a lot of people and still stay in power? Uh, you know, it suggests uh, a number of different possibilities, which we don't completely flesh out. Uh, but one possibility is that, you know, during an economic crisis, your resources shrink, but those of your opponents also are shrinking. So uh, it still doesn't, even though some, some people in your support coalition, they're getting less, it doesn't make sense for them to defect to the opposition because they also would get less as a member of the opposition. Another possibility is that um, the whole notion of minimum winning coalition is just not right. Uh, when dictators have a lot of resources, they will over hire uh, people to support them. Uh, and so that, you know, when there's an economic crisis, they can still cut benefits to some people and still stay in power. Um, you know, it's unclear which scenario sort of played out in some of these classic cases like Iraq. Uh, and certainly in the case of Venezuela, it's unclear uh, what happened there. Um, the second conclusion that we came to uh, was that we looked at these cases, and this is very, very much sort of inductive reasoning. Uh, we identified three variables that are very important in terms of determining whether or not regimes can survive uh, after an economic crisis. Uh, the first variable is the duration and severity of uh, an economic crisis, uh, especially the duration. So obviously, the more people expect an economic crisis to last a long time, you know, like sanctions that are going to be in place for years and years to come, the more incentives they have to uh, try to overthrow the incumbent or defect to the opposition, um, you know, in search of higher payoffs. Um, the shorter the crisis is, the less they're, they're likely to do so, um, you know, for the obvious reasons like, oh, well, things may be bad today, but tomorrow when the economy recovers, then I will continue to get huge amount of payments from uh, the di dictator. So that actually has a lesson uh, for sanctions, you know, today, which is that, um, the world, if it wants to impose sanctions uh, on a country, you know, whether it be Iran or Russia or whatever, it has to make sure that the sanction regime is highly institutionalized and credible, uh, credibly in place for the medium term, at least. Uh, otherwise, it's basically useless, you know, because um, the lieutenants of dictators will say, well, this is only going to last for a year or two. Then I can go back to sailing on my nice yachts, you know, around the Mediterranean, etc. The second variable that we think is important is the regime's control over financial institutions. 
Um, obviously, the countries that uh, did the, the best on this score uh, included China. So China had financial crises, uh, but then because they completely dominate the financial system, it wasn't really a problem. Uh, there's a sort of the classic case comparison between Malaysia and Indonesia, where in the case of Indonesia, during the Asian financial crisis, uh, the government didn't have very much control over the financial industry. As a result, there was huge ma- uh, capital flight. Uh, in contrast, you know, as described by Slater and others, in contrast, in uh, Malaysia, you know, there was effective capital control, which, you know, uh, was one of the contributors to uh, how the regime survived the Asian financial crisis. And then finally, we agree with the literature that, that uh, political institutions matter. So party institutionalizations, those obviously still are working in the background to provide incentives uh, for regime insiders to stick with the regime uh, through thick and thin, so to speak. Um, so I'll just uh, apply our uh, insights under the case of Venezuela um, very briefly. I don't know the case super well, uh, so I just come up with some kind of superficial observations, and and I'm sure that um, you know my colleagues, the two Richards, uh, can carry carry continue the conversation in a, in a much more rich way than I I am able to do so. Um, so the first problem that I saw. A uh, problem in terms of, you know, uh, the inability of the international community and, and the domestic opposition, um, their inability to carry out regime change. Uh, the first weakness is that I didn't notice uh, too many linkages between uh, the opposition and the military. So at the end of the day, uh, Maduro stays in power because some segment or maybe a large segment of the military backed him. Uh, and as long as, you know, uh, the opposition could not make a credible promise of payoffs to a substantial segment of the military. Uh, the chance of any, you know, uh, push to change the regime uh, did not have a good chance of succeeding. Um, so for, for people in the military, you have to think about it this way, right? Um, so, of course, you know, again, uh, Venezuela had been under various kinds of oil-related sanctions for a number of years, um, you know, even prior to this kind of volatile period of 2018-2019. Um, so, you know, obviously the payoffs to members of the military had been in decline uh, previous to that. But what, what are their alternatives, right? So there's no clear path or clear possibility for senior officers uh, such that if they were to back uh, the opposition and the opposition were to succeed that they would necessarily get a higher payoff. You know, at least I, I never saw anyone uh, making them promises like that. And of course, you know, in a democracy, things become highly uncertain. uncertain. Uh, you don't even know if the new government would form like these, um, you know, tribunes to try members of the military for the past misdeeds and many of them are guilty of it, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, Unless payoffs are made to them uh, extremely clearly, um, that was a problem. Or unless their existing payoffs were so low that almost any other outcome would have been better. Uh, That was the case kind of in the Eastern European militaries prior to the transition. Uh, And then all the, it's like in the case of Germany, the West German government just promised all these guys a pension. And they're like, oh, a West German pension? Sounds good to me. I'll take that. Uh, and that was kind of enough. Um, 
And then also, I the other factor that I heard about was that there were these uh, Cuban advisors or secret police types on the ground, uh, watching over the troops, watching over officers, kind of like a political commissar system to make sure that they remain loyal uh, to the regime. So that might have been the case. And that certainly uh, works. Uh, and basically, the way is similar to kind of a Saddam Hussein, uh, where he would give extraordinary payoffs to uh, both, you know, close relatives uh, and also these sort of secret police types so that they can watch over the rest of the military. Um, so even with a, a lot of reduced resources, as long as you pay the secret police sufficiently, they can help you watch over, um, you know, members of the military to make sure that they don't deviate. This is a sort of a classic trick that, um, you know, a lot of countries use, you know, North Korea, the Soviet uh, Soviet Union, when there was still the Soviet Union, maybe even today, uh, China has a commissar system. And it seems like um, there was kind of that system in place in Venezuela also. Um, anyway, I don't know the, the case super well, um, but uh, I think, <clears throat> you know, one mistake uh, that some people make is that, you know, when, when they think about uh, regime survivability or potential for transition, there's too much focus on the you know, the opposition, you know, potential opposition, their size, their willingness. That's very important, of course. Uh, but ultimately, most regimes collapse because some segment of the regime insiders defect to the opposition. So the incentives of uh, regime insiders to defect uh, also, you know, is very important. Uh, so I'll leave it at that. And, um, you know, again, I wish I could uh, join in real time, but I have a conflict in my schedule. And uh, I, I will certainly watch the recording um, to hear the Q&As and the other you know, panelists. Thank you, Victor. Uh, at this time, um, I want to uh, welcome um, Javier Corrales, um, professor of um, political science from Amherst to our virtual stage. Take it away. Thank you so much, Richard, and um, all the organizers and the technical group. Um, They've been great helping us uh, get started and um, delighted to have heard uh, Victor's remarks and uh, to be sharing this panel with uh, um, the great Cuban scholar, Bill. Um, what I thought I would do is um, let me start out by discussing for about four minutes or so, a little bit the three cases, Cuba, Nicaragua and Venezuela, and then um, dwell a little bit longer on Venezuela. And I hope this isn't too, uh, that this doesn't be, go beyond my allotted time. All right, so um, let's first do the common denominators, the answer to the question of why are these regimes still in place? And, and I think they all have the similarity of, you know, the repression is there. It's very important we don't forget that. And they have been very, very, they continue to use repression when necessary. And also they have the exit mechanism. This is the, the, the possibility of leaving. So, so they have this in common. But like Victor was telling us, uh, in the study of authoritarian regime survival, we have, we have needed to go beyond that because uh, even regimes that engage in repression and have exit communities, um, not all of them survive. So, so what could be uh, happening here? Now, it's important to know that there are different stages of um, longevity, and this, of course, affects. Um, now, let me just say something very quickly about 
uh, Cuba. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to say what I think is really the most important factor. This doesn't mean that it's the only factor uh, for each of these cases, but uh, uh, it's worth, uh, I, I want to be able to, to, to share what I think. Um, in the case of Cuba, I continue to argue that an important aspect of the survival of the regime is what I call and others have called the second embargo, which are the restrictions that the Cuban government imposes on the construction of independent wealth. These restrictions, as Richard Feinberg has well documented, have eased significantly. That's absolutely true. We're not in the command economy era of uh, 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 even when Fidel Castro was there, but we still don't really have a society, a civil society, let alone a middle class, with the wealth necessary to rise up. It's just not there. The regime has the institutions to prohibit the development of independent wealth. The embargo, the U.S. embargo, of course helps, but my sense is that the Cuban uh, domestic embargo is really the, the issue here. Apologies for that. Um, in the case of Nicaragua, what we saw with Nicaragua, and Richard Feinberg again has written so much on Nicaragua, and I, I, I may be a bit superficial here, it's an example of a process of autocratization that occurred because political parties were weak to begin with and became very weak immediately. And maybe Ortega's great, great contribution to, uh, um, to the study of authoritarianism is when he came to office again in 2006, uh, he went after the weak political parties. And for many, many years, Nicaragua was a country where there was no real opposition organized along political parties. There were civil society groups, but we do know that it is very difficult for civil society alone without parties to contain democratic backsliding in many ways. And yet the government was developing a ruling party with a significant network of influence. So the point that Victor was making about the importance of uh, a ruling party that is consolidated in the context of an opposition that is losing political parties, although it might be growing, is what I think the Nicaraguan case is a perfect, perfect textbook example of. Now, let me turn my attention to Venezuela because as many of you know, uh, uh, I've, I've been spending a lot of time discussing and trying to think about Venezuela. And um, let me begin by saying that, um, that I want to agree with uh, Victor's uh, point, two points, that it is very difficult to encourage regime change with external sanctions. I am... Cuban-American, I come from a tradition of believing that sanctions can do the job. And I have to be honest and say that I have changed my, my mind because I think the evidence tells us that if economic sanctions don't topple regimes right away, these regimes figure out a way to survive with it. It's sort of like you have one or two opportunities to do this. And if you don't, like it's sort of like going bowling, if you don't strike, uh, you just won't. And because regimes do exactly what Victor was saying, which is under economic uh, restrictions, they basically 
provide more resources to some key groups that are necessary, and then they deny resources to other groups. But by being able to co-opt still a little bit and figure out ways of um, uh, bypassing these restrictions, they develop new survival techniques. So, so what we are seeing is um, uh, not a real surprise at this moment, but now a case where economic sanctions didn't work and that's really what other cases are telling us. There are, of course, exceptions. The South Africa example is always the exception that people bring to mind. Um, uh, but, but, but for the most part, embargoes can change, can force authoritarian regimes to change some policies, like perhaps stop a war or release some uh, dissidents. But very seldom do they topple authoritarian regimes. So that's the first thing I wanted to say about um, Venezuela. Now, the other point that Victor made, which I think is worth highlighting and that I also agree with, is that what you need to be able to understand is how do governments, how do authoritarian governments prevent a big defection and especially a defection of the military? but not just the military, important sectors, civilian groups. Um, when the regime is facing opposition and has to make the decision to repress, all these supporters of the regime at the top need to make a very hard decision. Do we side with the president repressing or do we say enough is enough, let's defect and let's now turn against the president? We now know what happened in Venezuela um, during the period of maximum pressure, during the period of the Guaido uprising, which went from 2019 to about 2021. Um, this defection didn't happen in a significantly large institutional way. There were many defections and there was dissent and it was repressed, but the key allies of the government at the very top remain coherent. And so, in the book that I'm writing and that Richard Kai uh, was kind enough to mention, and I'll be uh, self-promotional enough to mention it again, um, there's a chapter where I talk about the concept that I called function fusion. Let me say a little bit about this because this is what I think Maduro did to prevent defection. Um, Victor was discussing the strategy, the toolkit that some dictators employ of essentially rewarding key allies with special economic favors when things get tough. What I have discovered is that in the case of Venezuela, it became harder to do so because really the sanctions and the economic depression of the country were absolutely uh, insane and there were no, not enough economic resources to keep the key allies economically happy. So what Maduro decided instead is what I called function fusion, which is to tell institutions that existed in Venezuela and grant them new governing functions, functions that one would normally associate with other institutions. He would fuse the institutions of other institutions with uh, those uh, existing institutions. So let me give you an example, a few examples. The military in Venezuela, for example, was following the Cuban model, 
during the Maduro period, given increasingly more economic functions. They were turned into business entrepreneurs in many ways, and they also became in charge of the oil industry as well as an illicit industry. So the military gets economic functions, business functions. Civilians also got enhanced military functions. We're all familiar with colectivos. Colectivos are paramilitary groups. And the interesting thing about it is that Maduro promoted the rise of civilians with huge military functions. And this was absolutely great for these colectivos because they became sheriffs and, 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 uh, and gangsters promoted by the state. And that allowed them to, to stay loyal to Maduro. Judges. Judges in Venezuela have been allowed to become vendors of the state. I have been able to get data showing, well, I've been able to find um, folks in Venezuela who have documented that there are many judges who become the owners of companies that sell to the state. Um, ruling party members, when they, for example, become governors or mayors, if they are very loyal, they become real dictators, maybe more dictatorial than Maduro himself within their jurisdiction. Maduro grants them a significant degree of autonomy within their jurisdiction to do as they please, including perhaps participating in illicit functions and having their own deals with the private sector, whatever there is, and even external act, uh, foreign actors. Um, communal councils, which was one of the big inventions of Hugo Chavez, um, which were supposed to be communities dealing with um, uh, economic problems at the local level. Um, eventually, they morphed into, uh, you know, uh, little cells of the ruling party. But what Maduro does is take many of these communal councils and he gives them the functions of being the enforcers of welfare. They are the ones who begin to determine who's going to get assistance during the economic crisis, who is going to be uh, receiving them. And they were in charge essentially of deciding you get it and because you're going to get it, you need to return a favor to me. So he uses communal councils to weaponize uh, the, the welfare state. And finally, another example of function fusion, and this is really one of the most extraordinary. I don't know that all authoritarian regimes do this, but this is still nevertheless part of the same concept. Um, that is, Maduro has done something remarkable. He has allowed foreign actors to basically exercise state powers within Venezuelan territory, and especially illicit actors. There are reports, for example, of um, the um, guerrillas from Colombia operating in Venezuela, especially prior to 2021. Um, and they're operating in a way that they almost seem like state actors. They're providing services, but they're also repressing. They're conducting official economic transactions and they're conducting unofficial economic transactions. They engage in formal violence and informal violence. So by Maduro granting these actors this autonomy to operate almost as state actors, these forces were immediately converted into very loyal to the regime.
So those are some of the examples. You're probably thinking, well, okay, this is probably too extreme. And I agree that it is too extreme and very risky. In fact, absolutely risky because you might be generating, in, in the process of co-opting them by giving them more governance structures, you're eroding your own base. No, you're eroding your own capacity to maintain unitary control of the system. That is absolutely true. But in the short and medium term, Function Fusion allowed Maduro to survive the economic catastrophe that resulted from the collapse of the oil industry, the collapse of the formal economy, and then the sanctions, and then the economic drain from the migration crisis. because there was very little money to move things around. He had to be creative. And what he ended up doing was to eventually give out uh, parcels of governance to all these institutions by giving them functions that would belong to other institutions, the way that we in political science think of the functions of institutions. And by giving them more functions without necessarily giving them more money, more tangibles, he was able to win their loyalty. Um, Those were really my remarks. I know my time is up and I am going to stop right now. Thank you very much. Thank you, Javier. At this time, it gives me great pleasure to um, introduce uh, again, um, William Leo Grande, Professor of Government from American University. Um, William, take it away. Well, thanks very much, uh, Richard, uh, and thanks to the Institute for organizing this really interesting webinar. It's a great pleasure to be with you and, and with my colleagues on the panel. Um, you know, in the research that's been done on authoritarian resilience, one of the findings is that regimes that have origins in social revolutions tend to be more resilient over time. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that they have a kind of foundational legitimacy. Uh, a revolution that is widely popular when it happens uh, has a kind of carryover effect in terms of the legitimacy of the regime. Now, obviously, that doesn't last forever. It tends to decay over time with demographic changes and also with the accumulated shortcomings of the regime once it's in power. Uh, In Cuba, we can see this very, very clearly with the attitudinal gap between the older generations which either lived through the the insurrection of 1959 or lived through came of age during the early years of the revolution, the 1970s and and perhaps even into the 1980s, when there was a kind of deep enthusiasm for the social changes that were underway. And you compare their attitudes, which tend to still be supportive of the regime, with that of younger generations, particularly people who came of age during or after the special period, which is what the Cubans call the incredible economic depression that followed the collapse of the Soviet Union, the gaps in attitudes are extraordinary. Uh, Those younger generations pose a real political problem for the regime because they tend to be extremely critical of it. Another element that uh, tends to bolster the legitimacy of uh, authoritarian regimes that have revolutionary origins is nationalism, because nationalism usually is a key component for putting together a revolutionary coalition in the first place. And it can then be used by the regime as a continuing uh, legitimizing instrument, if you will. Uh, Now, this is obviously very clear in the case of Cuba, where the regime has been 
uh, blaming the United States for its problems for the last 60 years. And of course, the United States contributes to that by continuing to have a policy of hostility and economic sanctions. But I think you can see that nationalism has also been part of the appeal of both the Nicaraguan government and the Venezuelan government. Charismatic leadership plays a role in some authoritarian regimes, reinforcing, again, regime legitimacy. This idea, particularly of the first generation of revolutionary founders who achieved what at the time seemed to be the impossible of overthrowing the prior authoritarian regime, uh, they often tend to have uh, a deep personal legitimacy and following. Again, Fidel Castro, of course, is the classic example of this, probably one of the most charismatic political figures of the 20th century. I think Hugo Chavez, to a certain extent, uh, had a similar role in, uh, in Venezuela. Uh, certainly, he built an initial constituency around that. Ortega, less so, although remember that the Sandinistas party originated, of course, in a revolutionary struggle. Uh, it's important to understand, I think, though, that in all these cases of revolutionary charismatic authority, there's also usually more involved than just um, the charismatic personal uh, characteristics of the leaders. Usually, it's also connected to actual policy changes in which early in the revolutionary process, uh, there is dramatic social change that benefits certain constituencies. And in these cases, because these are left-wing movements, tended to benefit uh, the poorer segments of, of the population. And that tends to then cement in a degree of support from the lower classes for these regimes, even down the road when the regimes are having trouble and no longer, if you will, delivering the goods. So and another reason, of course, for the resilience of all authoritarian regimes, and this is something that both Victor and Javier talked about, is the question of who benefits. Uh, like all regimes, some people benefit from the status quo. Uh, in the Cuban case, of course, uh, and in I will say in communist systems historically, and I'm thinking especially of Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union, there was what analysts called a social compact. That is to say, the regime delivered benefits to the general public, free education, free health care, guarantees of minimum consumption, and in exchange, the population was willing to accept an authoritarian political system. Uh, in Eastern Europe, this was, was known as goulash communism. Uh, and of course, when the governments in Eastern Europe stopped delivering on that promise, it undermined their legitimacy and was an important contributor to the, uh, the changes of 1989 and the collapse of those regimes. Of course, some constituencies in an authoritarian regime benefit directly, and Javier talked about this at, at some length in the Venezuelan case. Uh, and when I say benefit, I mean not just through public goods, but uh, privately. Uh, bureaucracies, both state and party bureaucracies, uh, benefit from the status quo in these regimes. Uh, the payoffs that they get, as Javier was describing, and Victor as well. Um, in the Cuban case, it's precisely these bureaucracies that are wedded to the status quo 
that have actually been an obstacle even to incremental reform, even to the economic reforms that the regime has uh, has tried to pursue over over the last uh, few years. In Venezuela, uh, many people wondered why it was that the armed forces uh, didn't overthrow Maduro as the economy descended into chaos and hyperinflation. And I think Javier has already told us the answer. The, the armed forces benefited financially. Uh, they, they were among the biggest recipients of the payoffs uh, that Maduro handed out to his supporters. And consequently, uh, they were loyal to the regime. I think also there was a concern, and this is something Victor mentioned, about in the aftermath of regime collapse, would the armed forces become subject to recriminations by, uh, by a, new, a new government? And naturally, if they were benefiting reasonably well under Maduro and risked uh, um, serious consequences for their past actions in the event of a regime change, naturally, the armed forces sided with the regimes. So why do oppositions fail? Uh, so first of all, I, I think, and again, uh, people have mentioned this, Javier in particular mentioned uh, the export of opposition. Uh, the fact that it's easier in a number of these cases to choose exit over voice, uh, to use Hirschman's formulation. This has been especially true in the Cuban case where we have seen uh, successive waves of large-scale migration off the island to the United States. Uh, also true in the Venezuelan case, as all of the surrounding countries that have had to take up these refugees can uh, can uh, attest. And I think we're seeing more of that in in uh, from Nicaragua as well. A second reason that uh, opposition movements have had a hard time gaining traction is, again, the issue of nationalism. Um, regimes can, in appealing to nationalism, brand their opponents as vendepatrias, traitors. And this, again, has been very clear in the Cuban case, where all opposition, in effect, has been branded as anti-nationalist and uh, essentially conscious or unconscious agents of U.S. imperialism. Uh, the Cuban government constantly calls its opponents annexationists, referring back to a mid-19th century movement of Cubans who wanted to join the United States as a state and give up statehood in Cuba entirely. And once again, this is uh, a weakness in the opposition that is unintentionally and ironically reinforced by the fact that the United States spends $20 million a year um, funneling resources to the opposition, uh, which makes them, from the regime's point of view, all paid agents of Cuba's enemy. We see nationalist appeals in both the Nicaraguan and Venezuelan cases as well, of course, and efforts to brand the opposition as just stalking horses for a return of American domination. Repression um, is, is really built on organizational capacity. Uh, and the ability of an opposition, opposition movement to resist or overcome repression uh, depends on their organizational capacity. 
in the Cuban case, there has essentially there was essentially no organized opposition of any kind from about 1965 to the 1990s. And there's very little even today. Uh, the, uh, and this is because at the very beginning of the revolution, the revolutionary government essentially eliminated independent civil society for all intents and purposes. And it's only really in the last couple of decades that there has been sufficient space for the beginnings of development of civil society more broadly, but it's very constrained when it comes to issues of opposition. So the government today in Cuba is willing to tolerate the creation of civil society organizations that don't challenge the fundamental uh, basis of the system. Uh, so, for example, there are animal rights groups, there are LGBTQ plus groups, there are feminist groups. A wide variety of organizations have have grown up in the last couple of decades. But opposition political movements and opposition political parties continue to be subject to the same very high level of harassment and repression uh, that they were in previous years. Venezuela and, and Nicaragua are a little different in this regard, of course, because uh, the opposition was never totally dismantled in, in those cases. Uh, hence, you see more active opposition. So you see much larger uh, organized demonstrations uh, historically, that is to say in, in the last two decades. Um, and that in turn has elicited more violent repression. Uh, the Cuban opposition movement has never been able to put together the resources necessary, uh, the organizational capacity necessary, or the popular support, frankly, necessary to pose a significant challenge to the regime. Um, and one of the reasons, uh, one of the uh, one of the um, reasons most recently of the failure of the effort to organize a nationwide demonstration last November was the uh, fact that the opposition tried to organize it entirely on Facebook. So Facebook is is a social media group. It's not an organization, and it's not capable of pulling together. Uh, anything more really than a few one-off kinds of, of demonstrations. And the demonstrations last November, the combination of a lack of effective organization, a failure to appeal to the, the grievances that most Cubans have, which are economic, not about artistic or political expression, uh, and, and then the repression uh, that the government used uh, led to an utter failure of any organized demonstrations last November, despite several months of leading up to it. Um, and finally, I will say that uh, at the end of the day, the only way you see a kind of people's power revolution of mass uprising, like you saw in Eastern Europe, like you saw in the Philippines, like we've seen in the color revolutions, is if the security forces defect. If security forces remain loyal, the regime survives. And that, I would, I would argue, is the difference between uh, Eastern Europe in 1989 and Tiananmen Square in 1989. And in the three cases we're talking about today, Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, there is really no indication uh, that the security forces in either of those three cases are on the verge of defection. Thanks.
Thank you, William. At this time, it gives me great pleasure to introduce uh, Professor Richard Feinberg. Um, as I mentioned, he's a professor of international political economy at the School of Global Policy and Strategy here at UC San Diego. Uh, Richard um, has a um, career that spans um, both the public sector, the private uh, sector, and, and also as um, academic and, um, and as the editor of Foreign Affairs Magazine's Western Hemisphere book review section. Um, he's also the principal architect of the 1994 Miami Summit of the Americas um, under the Clinton administration. At this time, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Richard, who will um, finish off this panel. Richard, take it away. Thanks, uh, thanks, Richard. Uh, really, a great pleasure to be on this panel and to follow my my colleagues Victor Javier and Bill, who have all laid out really brilliant and very succinct. Uh, responses to the questions of how is it that these three authoritarian regimes are still in place, uh, despite all the pressures internal and particularly external that they have been facing. Uh, really, the idea behind this panel is to confront some inconvenient truths, because a lot of the discussion, I think, in the United States uh, recently, but over many years in the case of Cuba, have uh, had this assumption somehow that, you know, these regimes are really quite fragile. And if our if the international uh, actors were just a little cleverer or a little tougher, that these regimes would crumble. And yet they endure what in Asia in particular is, is referred, to, referred to as authoritarian resilience. Uh, so the idea behind this panel is to really to sober up the debate, uh, to recognize that, hey, uh, we're, these regimes... Uh, have endured, and there are reasons that they have endured. Uh, and you've heard a lot of the reasons just laid out. Maybe pulling them together, I have uh, what I call uh, these regimes rest on three pillars, if you will. And the, the, the presentations that just preceded me uh, expand on some of this in a way. Uh, but one, of course, obviously, is the security apparatus. And it's emphasized if they hang tough together, uh, very, very hard, almost impossible to overthrow them. Security apparatus being uh, military, but also police and paramilitaries, uh, colectivos or terbas or whatever. Uh, and uh, what ha what's happened in these regimes that have now been in place uh, for uh, at least 15 years in the case of, uh, uh, of Nicaragua, 20 years in the case of, uh, of the Chavistas and 60 years in the case of Cuba, uh, they've had time to purge uh, any dissident elements within the security apparatus and to promote, promote loyalty, uh, their friends and colleagues uh, from within. Uh, these, these institutions, of course, are very hierarchical uh, and it makes defections hard. Uh, I also think back in the old days, uh, you might have been able to, you, you might have expected to see Colonel Coos or something. I think we're seeing less of those in part because of IT. Uh, you really can track and listen in on uh, and catch early in the game uh, any plotters uh, these days. So sec uh, security apparatus. Secondly, uh, broadly speaking, the public sector. Now, Javier elaborated on this, but basically 20 to 30 percent of the labor force works in the public sector. Uh, they have control over lots of resources. You can put them in control of, uh, for example, uh, delivering consumer products uh, in, a, in a repression situation, an economic recession situation. Uh, and so these folks, even when the overall economy declines, they still think their perks, their positions uh, that uh, in the public sector are more than the outsiders have. And so therefore, uh, they don't have 
that uh, incentive to defect. So the big public sector, you, and, and if there are elections uh, of different varieties, uh, you start off with 20 to 30% of the vote, uh, people working and their families working in the public sector. Uh, then the third, of course, is a political party. And uh, that was mentioned, but uh, not as strongly as I might've thought, given we just heard from some political scientists. Uh, but the Cuban Communist Party is maybe not what it, it doesn't have the strength, the loyalty, the ideological uh, impact that it had in earlier years, but it, it is still there and it's still by far the strongest uh, political organization in town. Uh, and similarly, the Chavistas and the Sandinistas, who, as Bill emphasized, uh, do have this legacy of revolutionary uh, legitimacy, uh, et cetera. And these political parties uh, perform a number of roles, uh, which is loyalty. They can mobilize the populations. They can distribute resources to the party uh, loyal loyalists, et cetera. So um, those are the three pillars that I, that I really sort of emphasize, security apparatus, public sector, and political party. Now, uh, together, what they can do is gain control over the means of communication. Uh, and I think that's something perhaps we haven't emphasized as much yet in this panel. But in all cases, uh, immediately in the case of the Cuban Revolution, uh, but gradually over time in Venezuela and in Nicaragua, the regimes uh, have taken over much of the media and they can exercise uh, various uh, um, uh, censorship or surveillance over, over uh, Internet activity as well. Uh, we've seen, by the way, that uh, IT, uh, cell phones, et cetera, uh, cut in both directions, right? They do allow, as Bill suggested, maybe some spontaneous uh, gatherings, but then that all that information on everyone's cell phone is turned against the demonstrators as they are gradually hunted down uh, by the security apparatus. Uh, so I think uh, the whole issue of information control, propaganda, uh, which may be rooted in history, as Bill suggested, or invented, as in the case of uh, more the case of Nicaragua these days. Uh, but in any case, uh, and then, of course, def uh, uh, absolutely uh, defaming uh, the opposition, calling them every sort of, uh, of uh, obscenity. So another way to think about this is you can have a revolution from above or a revolution from below. Now, the revolution from above, that would uh, require, as we've emphasized, uh, splits, defections. Uh, increasingly difficult. That's where uh, people who emphasize surveillance, whether it comes from Cuba, whether it's Chinese, whether it's just purchased on the uh, commercial markets these days. Uh, surveillance, I think, uh, has a lot to do with keeping uh, the, uh, the elites together. Plus, of course, as already has been emphasized, uh, the access to uh, various types of resources. Um, particularly in the Nicaragua case, when I've asked uh, some friends, well, uh, or take sort of, you know, he doesn't have the charisma, he's not really all that well liked, how does he hold on? And a lot of it has to do with, well, uh, he's the guy who controls the perks, who has the files on everyone, uh, their wealth, uh, their positions, their family safety, uh, all depends on El Carmen, where he's, uh, uh, in, where Ortega and his wife and family are ensconced. And uh, both for reasons of uh, continuing access to those resources and fear of what the uh, consequences of defection, uh, it's been hard to uh, break. So hence revolutions from uh, above are difficult. Uh, and revolutions from below we're seeing, I think it was emphasized also, uh, 
is very tough to pull off these days. Uh, I think we should recognize that state apparatuses, security apparatuses are more sophisticated today than they were in the 60s and 70s. Uh, they have more equipment, better training in, in, in crowd control, for example, uh, and of course, a lot more uh, IT capabilities. Uh, so the idea of a mass uprising uh, to overthrow uh, and then crack perhaps uh, a unified elite, very, very hard to pull off. And we should also recognize that by and large, these governments, uh, they haven't just with a few exceptions, uh, committed mass atrocities. Uh, they've, they've been able to modulate the use of violence uh, just enough uh, to keep the opposition from uh, controlling the streets or overwhelming the government. Uh, but they have not, for example, in general, assassinated uh, many political leading political opponents in a ways that might uh, uh, create a backlash against the government. Then finally, in all three cases, we see the opposition inevitably divided between, let's say, the radicals who say regime change now or nothing, uh, and uh, the more moderates who are willing to bargain and maybe accept something less than, uh, than full-scale democratization. Uh, and those divisions, of course, are, are debilitating. Uh, they've been particularly critical uh, in the case of um, cases both of Venezuela uh, and uh, and of Nicaragua. Uh, if the oppositions in Nicaragua had gotten had organized themselves better uh, and more intelligently in 19, in 2006 and 2007, for example, uh, they could have won that election, and this whole uh, uh, Ortega period might not have have uh, come to fruition. But anyway, the the bottom line is here: whether or not you're talking about revolution from above, cracks in the regime, or revolution from below. Uh, it seems in these three country cases, uh, neither uh, have proven to be feasible uh, tactics. Then finally, we've talked a bit about um, the failure of external pressures. Uh, and there, um, Bill pointed out some reasons. Uh, I would add uh, one or two others. Uh, uh, also, the surprise that uh, these governments haven't fallen despite uh, decl economic declines that actually are much deeper than uh, the, the, the relative declines that, say, occurred in Eastern Europe in which regimes then collapsed. So how is it that these regimes have endured uh, despite severe and prolonged uh, economic uh, recession or depression? And I think we've already heard some reasons for that. Uh, uh, but also, I would just emphasize that however little you may have, if you have a little more than the next guy, and you have a little more because you are part of the governing apparatus and the, the governing political party or the governing public sector or the security apparatus, uh, you're, you're a little better off and you're not going to risk that, that, that differentiation. Okay, um, so finally, then um, the issue of leadership was mentioned. I think this is really important, perhaps uh, more important than so far we've recognized. Uh, in Fidel Castro and uh, Hugo Chavez, uh, we really had extraordinary examples of, of uh, charismatic leadership. We might, we, some people, we may not like these guys necessarily, but we you do need to recognize uh, that how both in terms of strategy and tactics and personality are really uh, unusually powerful uh, personalities, uh, an exceptional degree of charisma. Uh, Ortega doesn't have it to that degree, as I think Bill already mentioned, uh, 
but he's had enough. And the other thing about him, he's, I see him as more like uh, the way Stalin came to power. Uh, he's a party man. Uh, he's the guy who had kept all the files, who ran the secretariat, who worked day in and day out on politics when his opponents uh, either went back to the private sector or uh, you know, emigrated or whatever. And he was left standing and he just worked at it. And that was enough for him to maintain control. So um, finally, so we have these three pillars. We have uh, the inability to do revolutions from above or below. Uh, charisma, the failure of external pressures that we've already talked about. Um, finally, the international environment may have something to do with this. Uh, we're in a period... And we'll have a whole panel talking about the precise forms of international assistance that may be coming from abroad. But in terms of broad ideological currents, uh, um, in earlier years, there was perhaps this idea that democracy was inevitable in the Western hemisphere and would take hold firmly. And uh, now that's, uh, of course, no longer uh, necessarily the case. So we see this resurgence of the liberalism and uh, increasing critiques of uh, representative democracy uh, create a more fertile international environment uh, for the, uh, to, that helps partly explain uh, the, the, this, this, what we now are observing as uh, resilient authoritarian regimes in our hemisphere. So thank you very much. Thank you, Richard. Um, and thank you for all our panelists. We'll get into some questions now. Um, I wanna start with um, the, the topic of, um, of communications. Uh, this was actually a, a, a point that uh, William brought up and, and Richard also, and the, um, and the effectiveness of IT tools for surveillance. Um, as uh, William pointed out, um, many in the opposition have used Facebook to try to organize, but then as Richard pointed out, communications, um, particularly in this um, digital age, can cut both ways. I want to I want to sort of ask all of you if you could sort of comment um, on the three countries, Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, on how surveillance tools are being used to repress um, the opposition um, and the challenges that the opposition face um, in organizing in this type of environment, particularly in light of new software tools like Pegasus is being used increasingly by many um, governments, including many authoritarian regimes. Um, I don't know who wants to start. Well, in the Cuban case, uh, the most recent example of the use of information technology for surveillance is um, the demonstrations, the spontaneous demonstrations that happened uh, on July 11 of last year, uh, in which across Cuba, probably about 10 to 15,000 people marched in about three dozen cities uh, complaining about the current economic situation and the government's failure to fix it. Um, I will tell you, if you watch any videos, you'll see almost all of these people had cell phones and they were so amazed at what was going on that they were uh, taking uh, live streaming uh, their uh, video feed to other people and to their social media accounts. And then the government harvested all of those and was able to identify people who engaged in in any sort of act of disruption or violence or uh, disrespect of police over the course of that day and the following day. And, and the trials that are now underway uh, are basically most of the evidence in those trials is video of the people engaging in these kinds of actions. The other thing the Cubans do, although they've done it for, for a long, long time, is um, because, because the organized opposition is so small, they they basically maintain constant surveillance over the people involved in it, particularly the leadership. So they 
you know, their phones are are capped. They have people who sit outside their houses watching who comes and goes and where they go. So those are all very old and traditional methods. Um, but but yes, governments are actually uh, in some ways more capable of using IT to their advantage than opponents are. Because as I said, just organizing opposition only online doesn't give you the continuity of of organizational capacity, leadership, resource mobilization that you need to mount a sustained opposition to a government. Um, Javier, um, any additional thoughts? Yes. Um, I, I, I want to say that we want to be a little bit careful with uh, overstating the argument about uh, the role of information, which I completely agree is there. In the case of Cuba, as Bill has said, um, everybody's being tracked uh, because of their uh, uh, use of social media. Uh, I'm not sure that this is so big elsewhere. Um, but what I would say is that what the governments have done is to use media to track specific groups, and especially within the ruling party and within the military that's where you're in real, real trouble. That's when you actually get caught. And, and Richard Feinberg was talking a lot about this. This is why we don't see the incidents of coup. We see the incidents of protest in Cuba. They didn't last in Venezuela and Nicaragua. They were much longer despite the media. And in many ways, the government uses other mechanisms to repress them. But the use of media is being used within the ruling party and within the military. And there it does the job. It does the job of uh, um, uh, making the regime a bit more coup proof. Now, one other thing. I do think that um, the rise of protests, um, these uprisings from, a, from, from below can be also a uh, double-edged sword. Um, the opposition actually, by becoming very vocal, always gives more excuses for the government to repress uh, and for the government to accuse them of being terrorists, recalcitrant. And it's one of those tactics that in and of itself, we want to romanticize it. And it's what uh, citizens have, but it's so extreme that it actually ends up if they don't overthrow the government right away, if they don't produce the defection, then they actually strengthen the regime. Uh, and that I think is, is, is the issue here. In other words, the protests, yes, get tracked through IT, but really what ends up happening is a conventional game of, uh, you were mean to me, I'm gonna be even meaner back to you. And that's what we saw. I don't know if you have any additional thoughts. I just wanted to, yeah. So, um, yeah, I agree, of course, with uh, what's been said. So I think we're seeing a, a, a blend of more traditional methods of surveillance and then the use of IT. So what the political parties still do is, you know, um, keep tabs of people in, in and around their neighborhoods. And they have mechanisms for, you know, reporting voices of dissent. And that, that still exists. And so that's important. Uh, the idea of um, keeping your 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 followers, whether they're in the military or your political party, in a bubble uh, with information. So in Cuba, uh, you know, the, the, we may think Granma is, is terribly boring, but you know, the party lo loyal read this 
And so they're, they're told what the party line is, and that's important in maintaining uh, cohesion. So you have, I think, a continuation of the reception traditional means with IT. My last point, though, is what happened to counterintelligence? You know, in the old days, we might think, you know, the CIA or some other uh, intelligence operation would be able to uh, use th- these various tools to uh, crack uh, the ruling elites. Uh, so if you go back to what happened, say, in Guatemala in 1954, uh, we don't seem to see that capability anymore, at least not visibly. Uh, partly, I think, uh, you know, the three governments we're talking about, uh, you know, have have expelled to a large degree uh, people that they think are linked to foreign intelligence from uh, you know, hostile powers. Uh, so that's part of it. Uh, and then our, our own capacities or our US uh, attention to these regimes perhaps is also degraded or eroded as well. Uh, so um, um, what we might've expected to see a colonel's coup uh, uh, propelled from abroad using uh, superior intelligence, uh, IT or intelligence techniques, uh, that seems not to be part of the equation anymore. Thank you, Richard. Um, I want to turn to this uh, topic of, of the opposition. Um, each, of, each of you have, have raised it, um, and also you've highlighted the, um, the difficulty that um, op- the opposition has in um, overthrowing some of these authoritarian regimes. Um, William also spoke about the um, the ex- uh, the exit of um, or the exile of many of the opposition. In fact, in the case of Cuba and Venezuela, many are now living in South Florida um, and trying to influence politics in their countries um, from Starbucks and and you know from their homes. But the question is, um, how effective is that, and uh, how effective? Um, will um, the opposition in each of these countries be to ultimately achieve their aims? Well, the Cuban exile community has been trying to overthrow the Cuban government for 60 years. Uh, And I think the the bottom line is that Cuba's future is going to be decided by Cuba, uh, by people in Cuba, uh, people who've stayed. Um, One of the things, though, that that has changed uh, is there is much greater uh, communication now between the exile community and people on the island. And that is because of social media. That's a change. Now, people, of course, Cuban Americans have been traveling to the island for a long time to visit family. But in terms of sort of sustained online um, connections through social media, that has really ramped up extraordinarily. And, uh, I, you know, it can have some political effect. Again, as an example, those July 11 demonstrations this, uh, from last year were began in one small town on the outskirts of Havana. It was it was organized uh, by a Facebook group, which is sort of a hometown association made up of people living in this small town and former residents of this small town that had moved to the United States. And and it won't surprise you to know that it was the people living in the United States that were sort of the, the, the motor force behind starting a small demonstration in this, in this town, which then grew spontaneously and enormously and spread across the country. So uh, I, I don't want to, I would not argue that those demonstrations were primarily a result of, of foreign subversion, but the spark that lit the prairie fire, if you will, actually did come from the United States. 
Uh, Richard, Javier, any other thoughts? Uh, should I go first? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I want to say that um, I'm not, I, I, this wasn't a big point of that you were making, Bill, but I, I, I wouldn't exactly say that the uh, Cuban opposition has been trying to overthrow uh, the Cuban regime. They have been wanting to, but this has been one of the most disconnected diasporic communities of all the ones we're talking about. Um, they do send their signals, but in fact, in the last 25 years, the Cuban-American community has been more connected with humanitarian assistance than anything else, despite the reputation of the uh, uh, that the, the Cuban-American community has of being, uh, you know, still in the uh, uh, Bay of Pigs mode. Now, the Q, the, the Venezuelan and the and the Nicaraguan community abroad has been somewhat active, and I don't think there's any scholar who will say that domestic forces should remain isolated from international ties. I mean, I don't think anybody agree, uh, would say that. So I, I, I don't want to start with sort of like, this is a bad idea. What has happened is that we fell into the trap of the diasporic communities in Venezuela and Nicaragua getting a little bit excited with a maximum pressure policy that became in vogue again under Trump. Uh, this idea that kind of what Richard Feinberg was saying, these regimes are about to fall if we just press them a little harder. And so they were encouraging their counterparts at home to adopt what I think is the biggest mistake that the opposition made in these uh, regimes, which was um, 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 in the case of Venezuela, especially abstain from elections. And in the case of Nicaragua, um, you know, uh, the, the, the whole idea of uh, uh, engaging in very, very, very um, widespread uh, student-led protests. Um, so that, I think, has been the, the, the key issue, that you either go for protests or you go for abstention and not enough into what Bill Leo Grandier at some point was stressing, creating an internal organization thinking strategically about how to use the institutional holes in the regime to try to gain prominence. Um, that was a long uh, uh, answer to the, the question you asked, Richard. So let me stop. Uh, Richard, do you have any additional thoughts? Uh, one or two things. Um, I think one problem that some of the oppositionists have had, is, and particularly in Nicaragua, uh, is excessive dependence on the United States. That somehow... Uh, their power would be dramatically augmented uh, by U.S. pressures or U.S. Uh, diplomacy. And uh, so I, I think, for example, when a lot of the uh, oppositionists were arrested suddenly by Ortega um, about, what, about nine months ago now, uh, people were sort of shocked. How can the United States embassy allow this to happen to their friends? Like somehow their association with the United States was a, a safety umbrella. And that that proved to be uh, an exaggeration of, uh, of of the of the power still and effectiveness of and influence of the U.S. Um, uh, in these circumstances. So, thank you, Richard. We've got uh, several questions from our audience. I want to get into some of those. Um, Tim writes: uh, Don't the three pillars eventually fuse into one central column? Isn't the definition of a mature authoritarian regime? Total confusion, state, party, and family, gun, state, and party flag intertwined into one knot. And how do you eventually untangle all that? 
Yeah. Thank you Tim, for that question. <laughs> well, I, I guess that's directed to me since I threw out this idea of the three pillars, which I just like the visual uh, imagery of it, you know. <laughs> um, I mean, my point was to just, uh, yes, of course, I'm not the first one to point out that these are important uh, uh, foundations of authoritarian regimes. Uh, but my, my point was, uh, and the point of this panel, I think, is to explain how is it that these regimes are still standing uh, after all of the international domestic pressures they face now over prolonged periods of time. And uh, you know, so some, some people have said, oh, it's all about Fidel Castro, and as soon as he's gone, the regime collapses. Well, as Bill Neogren has written very eloquently, uh, the regime, in fact, was institutionalized uh, in ways which I, you know, I've tried to explain. Um, and, and similarly, in, in the, other, the other two cases that, that we're looking at. So uh, that, that's really the purpose of that imagery of the, of the, uh, the, three, the three pillars. Uh, but also to emphasize, it's not just once. It's, again, some people like to say, well, Cuba is basically a military dictatorship. Well, that's, that fails to understand uh, some of the, the strengths and pillars uh, that the regime rests uh, on. It's not just you know, five generals holding the whole thing together. Um, so that's the idea be- behind uh, defining a, in a little more detail uh, these these three pillars, but yes, they are and they are intertwined, uh, you know. Of course, William Javier, you have any, would you like to comment on the question? I don't have anything to add. I think Richard's covered it. Okay. Well, let me get to the next question. Um, Victor Hugo writes: um, Leadership was mentioned um, as a recurrent trait of authoritarian leaders. In your view, what role um, does um, inspirational and charismatic leadership and charisma play in general in the failing of the opposition in Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua? I'll argue that in the case of Venezuela, which I know best, there has been an absence of a leader that moves the consciousness of Venezuelans at all um, societal levels, define a vision for the country, and truly threatens the foundations of Chavismo. Who wants to take that question? Well, Well, I'll... I'll... Go ahead, Bill. I'll start. So as I said at at the outset, I think charisma is always more than just the personal traits of of the leader. It it rests ultimately on the leader's ability to read the public and and his constituencies and then to actually deliver on a vision and a program that appeals to them. Uh, And I think, you know, Fidel Castro was was absolutely brilliant at that. If, If you if you sort of read a lot of his speeches, he, they are rooted in longstanding aspects of Cuban political culture, nationalism, independence, social justice uh, that go back 100 years from the time that he came to power. Um, and, and oppositions have, have the opposition, at least in, in Cuba, has just not been able to come up with a vision which is equally compelling. And I think I mentioned this a little bit, but let me elaborate. Uh, The uh, effort to organize nationwide demonstrations last November was organized primarily by young professionals, mostly artists and intellectuals. And the appeal that they made to motivate people to turn out for these demonstrations was greater artistic and political freedom of expression. Those are important values, absolutely. But that's not at the top of mind for most Cubans today. At the top of mind for them is 
how am I going to find enough food? How many hours am I going to have to stand in line to buy basic products? Why can't the government effectively manage the economy? Um, and, and the opposition had no program that spoke to those issues. And consequently, it wasn't able to mobilize people at all. Let, let me uh, add one or two points, if I could. Um, I'm always a little uh, uncomfortable when it's the opposition that's blamed for their uh, inadequacies, because uh, that's a bit blaming the victims, you know. Um, it's extremely difficult, as we've been pointing out, to uh, risk your your life, your uh, your assets, your family's welfare, uh, uh, to go up against these very, as we're emphasizing, entrenched regimes. Uh, the other point is that uh, these regimes have systematically purged potential leaders. Uh, Fidel was famous for doing this. Uh, so uh, hence, yeah, well, then you look around and there aren't alternative leaders, guess what? <laughs> because they, they've either uh, you know, been thrown in jail or um, in effect forced to exit. Now, in the case of Nicaragua, we have the very interesting case in which several, I think quite credible uh, leaders emerged and Ortega in effect recognized that these were credible leaders that were probably about to win an election. And that's why he threw them all in jail. Now, I do think it's interesting that he hasn't, at least so far, actually assassinated them. So he still recognizes uh, certain limits. He, I think he's still shown to be, let's say, rational uh, in the sense that he's tried to modulate uh, the, just the level of repression that he needs to maintain himself, uh, but without uh, going to such extreme measures as to perhaps create a, a backlash. Um, people in Nicaragua remember very well when Somoza or his, uh, his associates, let's say, uh, assassinated um, uh, 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 the leader uh, of the opposition uh, in 1978. Uh, and that then uh, was an important factor in precipitating the success of the, of the uprising and armed revolution. The other last point I would make uh, the opposition has pretty much in all three countries uh, decided they will not employ violence as a method, uh, even though they're up against uh, regimes which are willing to uh, to make use of their monopoly on the use of force. Uh, I think these, this decision to forego violence obeys several different factors. Uh, one is the state's the state apparatus is is a lot tougher and more sophisticated than it might have been in the 60s and 70s. So there's a much more formidable force that you'd be going up against. Uh, I think there's a moral argument. There was already a lot of bloodshed in, in all of these countries, not wanting to uh, extend that. Um, and then also, I think the, the, the experience that revolutions, armed revolutions that succeed do not necessarily result in uh, open, plural, liberal democracies. Uh, because for the obvious factor, who, the people who have the guns uh, may decide that, well, actually, they'd rather uh, have a monopoly on power once they succeed. So I think all of these are factors explaining why. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, this is something new, because back in the old days in Latin America, of course, you might have thought that the, as, and in fact, has, has, did occur uh, in two out of three of our cases. And, and, uh, and Chavez, of course, tried a coup himself that didn't succeed, but still the use of force. Uh, that's off the table. Uh, um, self-removed by the opposition forces. I think that's, that's historically a, a, a significant development. 
Thank you. Um, we're going to we're going to talk about international support in our in one of our panels tomorrow. But um, given that the topic of this session is about how regimes um, stay in power, I want to want to know if you could all comment briefly about the influence of China, Russia, case of Venezuela, Iran, in terms of uh, propping up and supporting um, these authoritarian regimes. Well, you know, early early in the Cuban Revolution, the, the Russian support, Soviet support for Cuba's revolution was um, indispensable. I mean, Fidel Castro in, in one interview actually said that if the Soviet Union had not stepped in after the United States first imposed its embargo, uh, the revolution could not have survived. Um, so it was it was absolutely crucial today. Uh, though it it's it's actually not that crucial. Um, Cuban trade with Russia is only about three percent of its total foreign trade. Um, the Chinese uh, have provided Cuba with some trade credits, but they are very reluctant to actually invest in Cuba because for them the economy hasn't been reformed enough yet, um, and. So Cuba, Cuba doesn't really have a major external patron right now. Um, it had Venezuela, of course, until Venezuelan oil production uh, declined significantly. It's, Cuba still gets a lot of oil from Venezuela uh, at cheap prices, but only about half of what it used to get. Um, Richard, Javier, do you want to comment on this? Oh, Richard, why don't you go first? Uh, yeah, well, as, as uh, Richard Kaya uh, noticed, that we'll have a separate panel on this, um, but uh, I, I'm of the mind uh, pretty much along uh, what Bill Leogrand suggested, uh, which uh, is that uh, one should not overestimate uh, the importance of external uh, assistance. Uh, and that's why I so emphasized in my presentation, I think we all have, uh, the domestic foundations and pillars of these regimes. Uh, which explain uh, their resilience. Uh, and so that's, that's, a, that's a counterpoint to the argument of those who say, well, if we could only dissuade Russia and China from involvement, uh, these regimes would quickly totter. And I think what we're all arguing here is uh, that's yet one more deception, self-deception uh, on the part of certain opposition elements. Okay. Yeah. I, I want to say that um, when the Soviet Union collapsed, Venezuela became the Soviet Union of Cuba and later Nicaragua. So uh, that's the international influence that played the decisive role, as Bill was reminding us, uh, for Cuba and Nicaragua. And uh, it was significant. Um, and now, who is, uh, now, uh, the, the question is who has been able to um, underwrite the Venezuelan catastrophe? And there is no question, there's no question that there hasn't been a more neoliberal government than Venezuela in terms of granting autonomy to foreign nationals operating in their oil and other industries as Venezuela, the extent to which they have transferred equity and resources to Russian, Chinese, Turkish, uh, and other actors, including illicit actors, is unseen. Perhaps 
The biggest irony of our time is that these three nations that want to build them, these three regimes that want to build themselves as the epitome of anti-imperialism have produced, reproduced the most old-fashioned, archaic forms of imperial interventions in their countries. And this is something that we have to accept. These regimes are in office in part because they managed to get themselves superpowers to sponsor them in ways that very few countries are lucky enough to have. And even though the Soviet Union collapsed and even though Russia is now in trouble and China has stopped providing it, there is still a significant degree to which these countries really, really yield way too much to these foreign powers in order to get a little bit of help from from each of them. Let let, let me just add one point in the Nicaragua case, because, you know, we've been trying to generalize among these three cases, which I think is fascinating. But, you know, of course, at the end of the day, each case has its own uh, special characteristics. Uh, In the case of Nicaragua, uh, for... uh, for a number of years, Venezuela was providing, relative to the size of the Nicaraguan economy, a major subsidy. And so I and others thought, well, uh, the regime seems so dependent upon Venezuelan largesse. Uh, when that largesse collapses, is the regime going to collapse? And I think what we found is, obviously, that didn't happen. Uh, it did. There was more discontent. Uh, and the spark for the uprising in, in uh, 2018 was, uh, you know, some, some increase in, uh, in utility rates to the population. Uh, but what we found was that the government could alter its mix of instruments. Uh, so it could, let's say, uh, you know, remove the, the, the face of the smiling Daniel Ortega with uh, his pink background and his campaign posters, and he could unshield his sword and mow down several hundred students. So uh, the point being, when you have more money, uh, you can maintain uh, order and support uh, through largesse. And when that dries up, then you you fall back on uh, elements of the security apparatus. Uh, You tighten things up. uh, You throw opponents in jail. uh, You kill some people and you maintain power through a higher dose of coercion. Uh, But the point being here that uh, it looked for a while that Venezuelan economic assistance was absolutely critical to the stability of the regime in Nicaragua. But we found, well, when that prop was removed, the regime, the authoritarian resilience, it's still standing. Thank you, Rich. Well, I think with that, we're going to have to um, conclude our panelists. I want to thank um, our our panelists, uh, William, Javier, Richard, and Victor for um, your excellent presentations. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.